0: This evening uh, Mike will preach on Psalm 32 and now Hannah is coming to read it for us.
1: Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart.
0: So let's, um, let's ask for God's help as we listen to his word now in Psalm 32. Father, please would you show us more of yourself now and would you help us to respond? Amen. So can I start just by um, asking, who, of you, who among us wants to be happy? In fact, let's do a little poll of it. Uh, raise your hand if you would like to be truly, deeply, lastingly happy. Great, yeah, okay. I won't do the opposite in case anyone's got a cunning theory why they disagree anyway. But we all, we all want to know deep, lasting joy. But here's the thing. This psalm that we read earlier, it reminds us that sometimes the path to deep and lasting joy is not the direction that we might think. Sometimes it's actually the opposite direction to the way we instinctively want to go. Let me make a confession that will no doubt shock you to your core. Um, I have a very, very vivid memory when I was a kid. Um, If you could go to the next slide. Of... um, In my parents' house, there was the cereal cupboard and then the cupboard above that had biscuits and chocolate and sweets in it. And there was one morning during my primary school years where in a quiet moment at breakfast time, I pulled up a chair and I climbed on the chair and I opened the drawer and I I went into the bag of toffees and I stole a couple of toffees from the bag. And I snuck them into my pocket and I sat back down as quick as I could before anyone came back in. And then I just carried on with my morning routine, you know, with my mum as normal. And anyone who knows me well now will tell you that I had a deep-seated conviction then that remains to this day, that sugar will make me happy. (laughs) So even though my heart was racing more than normal, even though my hand was sort of constantly going into my pocket to compulsively check that they were still there and still hidden, I was determined to keep those toffees firmly in my pocket, secret and safe. Sugar would make me happy. I knew that. And surely, owning up admitting that I'd stolen them, giving them back, that would make me embarrassed and humiliated and sad, right? And as I was thinking about that earlier in the week, I realized I still do this, even though I'm a grown-up. Let me make another shocking confession. Sometimes, me and Rachel my wife, sometimes we have arguments. Sometimes we upset each other. And the thing is, I literally can't remember a single one of the things that we've had an argument about. But what I can remember so clearly is the feeling that I get inside when it happens. Because my head goes into absolute overdrive, kind of silently fuming, and, and listing all of the reasons that my behaviour has been 100% justified, completely reasonable, completely understandable, and all the reasons that it's Rachel that's being inconsiderate or being uh, unreasonable, being unfair all the reasons that I am the one that is being wronged in this situation. I am the victim. I'm completely in the right. And actually, it's not that different to little primary school me with the toffees in his pockets. It's just that now I'm smarter, so I've got to the stage where not only can I convince my mum that I don't have toffees in my pockets, I can convince myself. However old we get, admitting that we have done something wrong, admitting our, our guilt... It never feels like the sort of thing we want to do, like the sort of thing that's going to make us happy, does it? It feels like the path to humiliation and pain. So we are naturally very reluctant to own up to doing something wrong or to being guilty to other people. But I think also we're naturally very reluctant to own up to what we've done wrong to God. But David, who wrote this psalm, He's saying to us here, I thought that too. (laughs) I didn't want to own up to my wrongdoing and sin to God, but I was being an idiot. I forgot what God was really like. And he basically says in this psalm, come, come, meet the real God and don't make the same stupid mistake that I did. Let me show you the way to real joy. Let's have the next slide just to take the toffees away. Look at how he starts the psalm. So if you have it in front of you, that would be great. Uh, Psalm 32, the first couple of verses. This is a psalm about repentance, about turning back to God, turning away from our sin. You might expect it to feel kind of somber and serious and heavy, but he starts with joy. The word blessed means truly, ultimately happy. So he starts by saying to us, truly, ultimately happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And transgression and iniquity, which comes later on, are just uh, other words for sin. He says, truly, ultimately happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. This psalm is an invitation to find real, deep Lasting joy. It starts with the promise of joy and it ends bursting out into songs of joy. And David is saying to us, I was such an idiot. I forgot what God is really like. Let me tell you my story. Let me show you what God's actually like. And that will show you the path to deep joy. So the first thing that David wants to show us about God is this. God longs to forgive us, but we have to ask him. God longs to forgive you, but you have to ask him. Take another look at verses three, four, and five. David is basically telling the story of his experience. He, he has sinned, by which we mean that in some way he has failed to love God or love others. He has wronged God or wronged other people, but he doesn't want to own up to it. He says in verse two that he kept silent. In other words, he didn't admit his guilt to God. And this is what he was talking about uh, in verse 2, where he says, uh, happy is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. He's saying, when I wasn't admitting this, I wasn't being honest with myself or with God. I was deceiving myself. I was pretending that I did not need forgiveness. But then eventually, in verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So he eventually abandons his cover-up operation. He stops lying to himself. He stops giving God the silent treatment. He owns up. He empties out his pockets. And what happens when he does that? Look at verse five. I think this is beautiful. In the very same breath. he's confessed and owned up, he says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It is immediate, total, comprehensive forgiveness. The second David takes responsibility for his sin and brings it to God, God takes the guilt away from him. It's like God couldn't wait to forgive him. It's like he was kind of waiting, eager, longing to forgive him if he would only come and ask for it. And the wonderful truth of the whole Bible is this. The real God who we meet in Jesus, he loves to forgive us. He longs to forgive us. And that we need to realize that that's not because he doesn't think that the wrongs we've done to him or to others matter very much. It's not because he he takes them lightly, not at all. The word that the psalm uses here for forgiveness, it it comes from the root that means to lift, to carry. And that's such a good little picture of how the Bible thinks about how forgiveness works. So it's not that God just dismisses the wrong that we've done as no big deal. It's that he lifts that heavy burden off us and he carries it away himself. That's what he did in Jesus on the cross. In Jesus God came to actually lift the burden of our guilt, the just consequences of all of our wrongs, onto like off his shoulders, if off our shoulders if we'll trust him and ask him to do it, and to put them onto his own shoulders. And he carried them, he carried them out of Jerusalem and up a hill called Golgotha, and he let them crush him as he hung on the cross. God is eager and longing to forgive us, not because it doesn't cost him anything. Not because our wrongdoing and sin isn't a big deal. No, God is eager and longing to forgive us because it cost him everything, but he has already done it. He's already paid that price. And so now there is literally nothing left for God to do to forgive us. All that is left is for us to ask him. And as soon as we ask, he is ready and waiting, itching and eager to forgive us and restore us. So David's point here is this. I was a total idiot to hold out in silence for so long. That's the point of verses three and four. He's saying, man, it was miserable trying to deceive myself, trying to keep quiet and not confess. Why did I do that to myself? And I think we know this instinctively as well. I mean, you know, what, how was I feeling when I had those toffees in my pocket? Was it giving me joy and peace? No, I was a mess. I was super nervous and I was distant from my mum. And I actually, funny story, ended up so compulsively putting my hand in my pocket that eventually my mum was just like, Is there something in your pocket? <laughs> and the whole thing came crumbling down. But it's the same when I refuse to admit when I'm in the wrong uh, with Rachel, too. It's not a happy place to be there to that place of insisting that I'm in the right, insisting uh, that I don't need to ask for forgiveness, it is tense and it's exhausting. But actually, David goes a step kind of behind that and he says that it was God who was making him feel that discomfort because God loved him and he was willing to do whatever was necessary to wake David up, to snap him out of it, to get him to realize, hang on, I can't just carry on like this. I've got to go back to God. Because the thing is that God would much, much, much rather that we were uncomfortable for a little bit now so that we could come to him and have deep and lasting joy that could start now and last literally forever. So God is calling to us through this psalm, through David, saying, just come to me now and confess and can I share with us a, a, a distinction that I've found really helpful and challenging? I think that is C.S. Lewis's distinction. But he distinguishes between... He says, don't ask to just be excused. Ask to actually be forgiven. Because I think so much of the time in life, when we say sorry, we're actually asking someone to accept a valid excuse rather than asking their forgiveness for really doing something wrong. We say, oh, I'm really sorry. I was just, I was just so tired. Or we say, oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, I, I've just been really stressed with this deadline. Or we say, oh, yeah, I'm just not feeling myself at the minute. Or I remember uh, a friend of mine talking about an argument that he'd had with his wife. And then a bit later, he found himself thinking, man, I don't know what came over me. Those things that I said and the way I was, I don't know what came over me. And then he thought, hang on, no, wait, nothing came over me. It all came out of me. And so often we try and tell ourselves that the good stuff that we do comes from who we really are. It comes from deep down. It's, that's our character. But then when we do something bad, we, we write it off as a mistake. We say, well, that doesn't really reflect who I am. But what God says here is we don't need to hide in those kinds of excuses. We don't need to try and kind of cover up and paper over all of the stuff that's wrong inside us. God says, if you bring it to me, I will cover it justly and perfectly and forever. You can't hide it from me, but if you bring it to me, I will deal with it and it will be done. We can just admit that the reason we do wrong stuff is that there's there's stuff that's wrong inside us, that we've we've done it because we're selfish or we're thoughtless or we're proud or we're cowardly or whatever it might be. We can own that. We don't have to be scared of it because God longs to forgive us for all of that if we'll just come and ask him. So now, look at what David shows us in verses six and seven about God. It's not just that God longs to forgive us, so we need to ask him. It's that when we do, he loves to be our hiding place. So he says, therefore, you know, since this is what you're like, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So what's he talking about when he says about mighty waters? Well, it could be two different things, and it's poetry, so it's probably both. So if we have the next slide. In the Bible, often waters are symbols of chaos. Imagine being on a, a, a tiny boat in a, in a raging storm on the sea. You're terrified of these kind of huge forces that are way beyond your control that you're subject to. And life can often feel a lot like that, can't it? But also, there's a bunch of language in the Bible, particularly in the prophets, that talks about God's justice like it's this kind of rushing, powerful river, these mighty waters that will come and sweep away all lies and all evil and make everything clean and new and right. Martin Luther King Jr. loved to quote the prophet Amos saying, justice will roll down like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. So David is saying here, when the waters rise when the chaos and brokenness of life strike you, or when the day comes that the river of God's justice sweeps through this earth and washes away all injustice and selfishness and lies and pride. He says, if you have trusted in God and taken refuge in him, you are totally safe. You have nothing to fear because God himself is your hiding place. It's madness to try to hide from God. It's impossible. But because of who God is and what we know he's done for us in Jesus, we can hide in God. It's madness to try and run away from God. You can't do that. Where could you go? But because of who God is, because of what we see in Jesus, we can run to God. The New Testament actually says to everyone who's put their trust in Jesus, your life is hidden with Christ in God. In fact, the main way that the New Testament describes what it is to be a Christian is that we are in Christ. When we trust ourselves to him, Jesus unites us to himself. He wraps us up and it means that we are one with him. We're united with him. We are literally inseparable And so whatever mighty waters might rise around us and overwhelm us, whatever storms of life might batter us, and even when in the end we're plunged into the icy depths of death itself, we can know that none of those things can ultimately destroy us because we are united to him. We're wrapped up in him and he will bring us through even death and out the other side into the new creation we do not need to hide from God because we are invited to hide in him. And the security and the peace of that are immeasurably more than we could ever manage on our own. David is saying, do not try and build yourself some kind of hut out of the things that you can do to make yourself feel safe. The God of the universe invites you to make him your hiding place. And then something weird happens in the psalm. David stops speaking. And instead, we hear God speaking to David and to us. Look down at verse eight, and let's just slow down for a second and try to hear God's tone of voice in what he says in verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Isn't that so precious? I think those words are full of tenderness and care and concern. It sounds like a parent kind of crouching down to their kid who's worried about learning to ride their bike and saying, it's, it's okay, it's going to be fine. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you. I'll have my eye on you. It's going to be great. If we come to God and we ask him for forgiveness for the things that we have done to him and to others, this is what he says to us. He says, you can change, you really can. I'll be here, I'll show you, I'll teach you, I'll keep an eye on you. It's gonna be beautiful. How does he do that practically? Well, the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, comes and lives in us, doesn't he? So God is present with us all the time and he loves to instruct us and teach us. God's Spirit speaks to us through his word as we hear it preached and as we read it and mull on it and, and study it with others. God's spirit speaks to us and helps us through his people, through others that can uh, challenge us and encourage us and uh, help us along the way. And he speaks to us sometimes as well through our conscience. You know, that that sort of feeling, that sense that something isn't right, he can use that to to bring us to kind of come back to him and and find out and listen to him and and see whether that feeling is there for a reason. And then we get the verse in this psalm where you get The clearest sense of that note from David of like, don't be as much of an idiot as I was. I made such a stupid mistake. Look at verse nine. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. He's saying don't be stubborn and refuse to listen to God teaching and leading and instructing you. Don't be like a dumb animal who won't do what it's asked unless you're constantly kind of prodding and poking it why would you not listen to a God like this? I mean, imagine that a, a world expert in whatever thing you're most interested in, uh, so you know, maybe you're big into running and it's, it's Mo Farah or somebody, or maybe you're a, a software engineer and it's somebody that I've literally never heard of, um, but a brilliant software engineer... And imagine that legend, that genius, they ring you up and they say, look, I, I want to come and be your personal teacher and coach and mentor. Would you react to that by being like, oh gosh, that's going to be hard work? No, it would be hard work, but you would be saying, yes, please, yes, please. And when they started teaching you, would you be stubborn and sort of not really listen and wander off while they were trying to talk to you? No, you'd be hanging on their every word. And when they corrected you, when they, when they told you to do something differently, would you resent that? Or would you relish that? And you'd be like, yes, I want to learn from that. I want to change. Friends, the God of the universe, the world expert on literally everything, and especially on how to be truly human, how to be fully alive, how to flourish as you were made to be, he is offering to come by his spirit and be your personal teacher and coach and mentor. Why on earth would you not say, yes, please, yes, please, Why on earth would you not listen to a God like this, even when he disagrees with you, even when he challenges you, even when he says things you don't like? Why would you not listen and learn as hard as you can? So let me just bring this home to us in practice. Earlier on, David talked about those in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I think mostly he's imagining there the deceit that he was doing to begin with, where we're pretending that we don't have any sins that need to be forgiven. Um, But I think there's a second way we can have deceit in our spirit, uh, which is to say our prayers, to come to God and say, oh, I'm sorry about that, forgive me, but not actually want to change. And of course, to say sorry for something without actually wanting to be different, without actually wanting to let him teach us and, and instruct us and lead us in the way we should go, that's not really being sorry, is it? We get annoyed when we hear politicians doing that, the kind of apologies that aren't apologies that are like, well, I'm sorry if I've caused offence to anyone by you being stupid, but actually, you know, but actually the psalmist is challenging us to check whether we're doing that ourselves. Are we saying the right words, going through the motions of confessing our sin, but not actually wanting God to change us and teach us and lead us? Now, of course, what I don't mean here is that if you ever sort of sin in the same way twice, that that means you weren't really sorry and that you weren't really forgiven. Please don't hear me saying that. I think all of us as Christians have seasons with particular things where we're really struggling with something. We, we, We mess up, we come to God, we ask him to forgive us, we want him to change us, we don't want to do it again and then we mess up again and it's so frustrating. And if that's you, please, please don't hear this as condemnation. Hear this saying to you, he is with you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Don't give up. Keep going. He is with you. But there is a world of difference between that and saying, sorry, please let me off, but not actually wanting to change. And if this is you, please let me just challenge you, don't deceive yourself. You're not really saying sorry to God if you don't really want to change. So what does it look like to be a person who really does want to change, who wants to listen and grow and let God teach us and transform us? I think it means being eager to find out what pleases God and what grieves God. So let me ask you, are there areas of life, attitudes, behaviors, things where you're not really sure, to be honest, what God wants you to do, how God wants you to be, where you don't really feel like you know what the Bible says about that or how it applies to us today and can I ask you if that's true how high a priority is it for you to find out to look into that so that you can grow in your obedience how much do you actually want to listen to God in that and let him teach you and instruct you in the way you should go so let me challenge you to spend a bit of time in prayer and ask her what are the big things where you don't really know what he wants and then Talk to someone about that. Uh, Look and and find where the main kind of Bible passages are about it and study them. See if people have uh, wisdom and advice on it. Work it through. Pray it through. Listen to what God says. And the other thing I'd say is that when we are aware of something that we need forgiveness for, something that we need to change, can I just really practically encourage us, it really helps to confess to another Christian as well as to God. It's made a huge difference to me. The times in my life, thankfully including now, where I've had a friend where we've agreed to meet up regularly, not necessarily super frequently, but regularly. uh, And a big part of that has been being able to tell each other where we're struggling with sins uh, and, and to confess to God together and to pray for each other and to pray that God would help us to change. If you don't have a friendship where you can do that, let me really encourage you to consider thinking of somebody you trust and um, just asking them if you might be able to meet up sometimes and do that, or even just ring uh, and chat on the phone. And The Bible encourages us to confess our sins to each other in James chapter 5, and it says that because it really helps. And in case all of this um, sounds like hard work, and sounds like it might not really be worth the effort, David ends where he started. He ends with joy. Look at verses 10 and 11. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And we might be thinking, hang on, I don't feel righteous. I don't feel upright in heart. You've just been talking about sin for like half an hour. But the beautiful thing is that the people who David says can be happy at the start are exactly the same people that he says can be happy and rejoice at the end. It's the one whose transgressions have been forgiven, not the one who thinks that they never sin. It's the one who is upright in heart because they're not deceiving themselves. They're not trying to deceive God. They come to God, they confess their sin, they trust him to forgive them and they ask him to change them. If that is you, you are the righteous. And so he invites you to rejoice and the word for this whole process that we see in this psalm of coming to God, asking for forgiveness, receiving that, and letting him lead us and change us, the word for that is repentance, which literally means kind of changing your mind or turning around. And I read somebody recently who, who said this, the deeper our repentance, the sweeter our rejoicing. And I just think that is absolutely the message of this psalm. He's saying to us, the deeper our repentance, the sweeter our rejoicing. So let me just say one thing about what this means uh, for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while. One word to those of us who maybe aren't following Jesus yet, and then I'll give you one last reason to rejoice, and then we'll pray and and sing. So for those of us who are, are following Jesus, sometimes we talk about our prayer life. I recently heard somebody talking about his repentance life, and I thought that was so helpful. I really want to encourage us to try and grow in our repentance life. I remember when I was 18, I'd been a Christian for two years, and I genuinely thought that I'd basically sorted my sin, pretty much. And even remembering it when I was preparing this, I thought, wow, that is funny and terrifying. <laughs> and, but the truth that somebody very helpfully, patiently, lovingly pointed out to me back then, and which thankfully I now kind of know in my own experience, is this. I, I try and express it in a form that hopefully many of you will be able to relate to in a graph so um, <laughs> as time goes on, as we follow Jesus, we genuinely do, you know, God is working in us. He is growing us, he's changing us. So the little kind of grey-brown line at the bottom that's going gradually wobbly up, that's that's our actual how much we're like Jesus. We are actually growing, it's really happening. But at the same time, a big part of our sin, a big part of the problem that we have is that we're really blind. Naturally, to both how holy and good God is, which is the, the top yellow line, um, and we're really blind to how much stuff is wrong in our own hearts and in our own lives, which is the kind of orangey one in the middle. And so as the Christian life goes on, our vision of God's goodness and holiness and therefore the the holy, good, Jesus-like life that he actually calls us to live that vision just grows and grows and grows and grows. And our grasp of how sinful we are and how, how much darkness there is inside us, that grows and grows and grows as well. But the amazing thing is, as that happens, the bigger that gap gets, the bigger our grasp of how amazing Jesus' love for us is, how incredible Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross is, how profound and beautiful God's forgiveness is. And so the deeper our repentance, the sweeter our rejoicing, because we taste and see more and more of how incredible God's love for us really is. So let me encourage you to actively try to move that way along the graph, because that is the way to more joy. A um, couple of ideas about how to do that. Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. And that means every day praying, forgive us our sins. So let me encourage all of us to make that habit every day. That we spend some time fleshing that out. You know, asking God to help us see, what do I need to ask forgiveness for? And repenting of that. And then why not also set aside some time, maybe set aside some time this week and then sort of plan it in occasionally, like once a month or once a term or something, to do a bit of a deeper kind of checkup. a bit like you would take your car to be serviced rather than just sort of waiting to hear if it makes any weird rattling sounds, to take a bit more time on this. And let me encourage you to reflect and um, pray about Psalm 86, verse 11, which should be on the screen. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you need to learn more of what God's way is or where you're ignoring what you already know. Ask him to show you where you're not really relying on God and his grace and his faithfulness. You're relying on something else, maybe on yourself. And ask him to show you where your heart is divided where maybe you're you're more motivated in life by desiring something else or fearing something else than you are by desiring more of God or fearing him. And then bring those things to him. And maybe you can let this psalm lead you through the process of repentance, of asking for his forgiveness, receiving it with joy, and letting him lead you and change you. And if you're someone like me who... naturally really struggles to sort of see your own sin, here's a really good trick for you. Ask some Christians who know you well. Ask some Christians who you actually live alongside or maybe who you work with in some way. Ask them to be honest and tell you how you could be more like Jesus and listen to them humbly. So let's really actively grow in repentance because the deeper our repentance is the sweeter our rejoicing in God. Okay. Okay. So if you are here and you're actually you know that you you haven't uh, made that kind of move towards God for the first time, you've never come to Jesus and asked him to forgive you and uh, receive that and let him change you, let me just say two things. Firstly, I'm delighted that you're here. It's so brilliant that you're letting God speak to you in his word. Um, And secondly, what is stopping you from coming to a God like this? What is holding you back? Why would you not come to a God like that? A God who is eagerly longing to forgive you. A God who wants to be your hiding place so that neither the kind of chaos of of this broken world nor the the day when his justice sweeps through this world like a river and makes it new. You don't need to fear any of those things because if you trust in Jesus, you can be hidden in him, safe in him. This God who, who wants to come and teach you and lead you. The one who, who knows what you were made for because he made you and he is offering to come by his spirit and counsel you with his loving eye on you. Why would you not want to come to a God like that and confess to him and put your trust in him and follow him? What is holding you back and what would you need to do to deal with that? To, to think that through, to, to kind of get that obstacle out of your way so that you can come to him. We're all going to pray in a minute. Uh, and when we do, you could, you could make that the moment that you join in with the rest of us in coming to God in, silently in your heart. And, and doing this, confessing to him, asking for his forgiveness and knowing that he gives it to you. But before we do that, let me just give you one last reason to rejoice because something that just blew my mind as I looked at these last couple of verses was David calls us to sing for joy, but he's already said that God surrounds us with songs of deliverance. And I thought, what's that talking about, that God sings songs of deliverance? And I found another place um, where it talks, yes, uh, about God singing over us. It's in Zephaniah and it says, the Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And if you look at verse 11 and you look at that, it's basically all the same stuff, just in opposite directions. Why should we rejoice? Because when we come to God, our God rejoices in us. Why should we be glad? Because he takes great delight in us. Why should we sing for joy? Because if we come to him, the God of the universe sings songs of delight and love and deliverance over us. My friends, why would we ever want to be the little kid with the toffees in his pockets, distant and nervous and tense chasing the kind of sugar rush of rebelling against God when instead we could come and be swept up into the lap of our heavenly Father and have the joy of seeing in his eyes absolute forgiveness that he utterly delights in us and hearing him sing over us songs of joy. So let's take a moment of quiet, and then I'll I'll lead us in in praying and then we're going to sing back to him. Wonderful, loving, gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus on the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness that you are so eager to give us. We confess our sin to you again now. You know our hearts. You know the different ways that we've ignored you, the ways that we failed to love you and love other people. We admit that freely and we ask you to forgive us. God, we trust you. We come to you and ask that you would hide us in Jesus and nothing would ever be able to separate us from him. And God, we invite you, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, to come in by your spirit to lead us with your loving eye on us, to teach us and transform us. We want to listen to you and follow you for the rest of our days and into eternity. Thank you, God, that your songs of love and delight surround every single one of us who trusts in you. Amen.